Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. This is just, this is outstanding. Guys, I'm so happy to be back here with you again. I am actually recording this from a proper studio because I, as I've mentioned in my, my podcasts, my, my earlier podcasts, I use a mobile kit because early on when deciding to do this whole shindig, I felt as though if I was going to be asking my famous friends for a favor that I better go to them. Because in L.A. especially, no one wants to go anywhere for anyone ever, especially if it doesn't include money. So I go to them. I go to their homes. I go to their studios. I'll meet in a library, a Nordstrom's, a, a mall food court, wherever they want to meet. And they are willing to bless me with an hour of their time. Well, I will go anywhere. So... This actually is the first time that I'm recording from a proper studio, and I feel very official, very proud of myself, and uh, yeah, I just feel important. I'm on a very ergonomic chair with some incredible lumbar support. I've got an actual producer here who's lovely enough to run the board, as they say, which is a show business term for uh, controlling a board, a board, yeah. And uh, I feel really excited to give you this next hour of podcasting with my friend Jeremy Bronson, uh, a great writer. We worked together on my show Grandfather that was on Fox. He spent seven years writing and working for Chris Matthews on Hardball and some of his other endeavors and then wrote for Jimmy Fallon on The Late Show and wrote with Mindy Kaling for the Mindy Project and just is an incredibly uh, impressive guy, went to Harvard. What more do you need to say? I mean, being a Los Angeles Valley Community College graduate myself, I know the, the, the value of higher education. So a guy that really committed himself to the Ivy League like that impresses me. And it's sad because I just lied to you, listeners. I only took two classes at LA Valley College and I dropped out of both. But I'm an actor, and so I'm allowed. Anyway, here's Jeremy. <laughs> Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes, help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. I like to get sort of the ambiance of it, you know? Definitely. Welcome people in. That's where you get all the good stuff. Um, yeah, like right? when people have their guards down. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going for. I feel very official. This is my first time recording in a studio. Can I just say it's so good to see you? It's so good to see you, <laughs> I, Like This makes me very happy. That I'm we're so happy. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. No, it's like really exciting. I don't want to screw my luck, but I, you know, my biggest trepidation about getting into this was I said, you know, I have access to some people that I think are incredibly cool and interesting, 
but they're in the business and they're constantly asked for favors. And it's like my biggest fear to put myself out there and ask someone to do this and just get shafted. Gosh, it's so flattering to be asked that <laughs> I'm surprised that that's that you have that trepidation. But that's because you're like a thoughtful person. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I know. It, it's people like to talk to you. They like to open up to you, you know, like when we were when we were on grandfathered and you and I would hang out in video village, you know, right. in between setups. Right. And just go through everything and just just talk. And you're very open. So it's yeah, people are gonna want to open up to you. This is this is neat. Well, and for the listeners, Video Village is Hollywood talk for sort of where everyone congregates to see what's coming through the cameras. So yes. the major sort of because it's you know as many monitors or as, that there are cameras and you see what the director sees. Exactly. Often the director will be sitting there calling action from Video Village. And if you want to know where the best food is on set, it's at Video Village because that's where craft service goes first. That's very smart. Right? Good advice to aspiring actors, up and coming <laughs> people in the business. Yes. It's all the important people. <laughs> yes. And they know like if they just made a fresh tray of quesadillas, <laughs> they're hitting Video Village. They want to make the producers happy. That's very, very true. Well put. But yeah, you know, like, because my biggest fear and, and, you know, being a neurotic Jew is that when I ask people to do this, I'm projecting this like, oh, poor Josh. Like, he's doing this random side gig and, God, he's asking me for a favor and how do I get out of this nicely? But I haven't had a single no yet, which maybe means I'm not aspiring high enough. But no. <laughs> <laughs> me and Stavos were the, uh, the, the quick, easy yeses. Oh, it's been beautiful. <laughs> I, You know, look, I think... You, you're the kind of guy that would do those things for other people, and, and people know that, you know. Right. But honestly, this is fun. Like I, uh, I'm excited to, I'm excited to get into everything. Just as like sort of a random question, because I, you know, I know like amongst writers, and you have such a great crew of of people yeah. that are that you're close with and are in the biz. What is the code amongst writers as far as reading each other's work and doing favors for each other? Because, you know, I'm sure there's like a fine line there. Well, I think, at least among my friends, the, the code is that if somebody asks you to read something and give some thoughts, you do it. And right. I mean, at least I do. I certainly asked that favor of many people, you know, when I was writing my first specs. And so I like to pay that forward. But, you know, it's... You know that when you write something, you need to give it to somebody else to have fresh eyes on it. You, that's right. part of the process. So if you're a writer, you're going to be asking other people to do it. So you should do it yourself. It's all part of, you know, it's all part of the process. And is it in an expeditious manner? Because I've definitely given certain things to people and I'm checking in 10 weeks later and they're like, I swear I'll get to this. You know, it depends. Sometimes it takes a while, but if somebody is about to submit a spec script to get staffed on some show and there's a time, you know, I was just reading something this morning, you know, for a friend who has a meeting and they wanted to just get some thoughts on it right. before they went in. Yeah, I do that all the time and I ask other people to do the same for me. And what, you know, and, and I just have a very sort of small experience with the whole note giving and yeah. taking of it all. But in my experience, people are, especially when they're friendly, they're, I think they assume that you are your own toughest critic. And so I've never actually gotten severe. Like, I wonder what, how severe have your notes been? Or are you always sort of a, of like, let me be as constructive as possible. And perhaps it's not my place to give him my true, true feelings, which is like, you're in trouble, dude. 
It depends who the person is. Right. And it depends what the material is for. You know, when I talk to our friend Danny Chun, right. you know, who created Grandfather, and we give each other notes. Right. You know, I know I don't have any compunction about saying, kill this scene or, or you know, kill this scene here. I, I think you need this over here. Because right. I know he can do that, and it's not going to be, it's not going to ruin his confidence. Or, yeah, traumatic. Yes, but if there's some, you know, an up-and-coming writer or a new writer, you try to give notes that are actually usable, implementable, that right. doesn't require them to throw out the entire thing, you right. know? But that's also a skill, too, knowing how to give people notes that are executable, mm. you know, as opposed to just discouraging notes that you really can't do a ton with, you right. know what I mean? So I, I, I tailor it for... In, in each case, I would say. Do you notes ever, are there ever too many? Like, is there ever death by committee where you've oh given it to too many people? This is, <laughs> this is the television business for right. 100%. I mean, intuitively, like, we know, right, that, like, too many chefs is probably not the best creative process, right? Right. But, you know, there are certain, there are certain um, structures that are, built into the process, sort of cost of doing business. And that's not to say that, like, you don't get good notes. Like, there are executives whom I trust and, you know, for example, made the mayor pilot much better with their notes. And I was I was very appreciative of that. Right. But it is tricky sometimes when you have different entities, production companies and studios and networks, and, you know, ideally they're all aligned with the same thoughts or similar thoughts. Right. Um, and if they're not, it can get a little trickier. Those are all just, that's like producing though. You know, it's all part of like navigating, navigating the system. You know, you're always like selling your material, even when you have your own show. Right. You're on the phone, selling, selling, selling each episode, selling stories, you know? Right. So it's just part of, it's just part of the process. But yeah, like we get overnoted all the time. The confidence thing, the confidence, managing your confidence. I don't know for you if that's been something like professionally that you've had to be mindful of. Only every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like definitely in writing, I mean, if you sit down confidently mm. at the keyboard, you're going to write better than if you are insecure when you sit down. Right. But it's also hard to will confidence, you know? Right. right? If you can't, you know. But you can, I think. Like you can, you can remind yourself why you can do this, why you're meant to do this, why you belong at this keyboard right now. And if you, it's all part to me of just managing your confidence because it would be anyone who tells you they don't have like moments of insecurity when making something creative is lying, right? right? Yeah. But I think you just managing it has been something that, that I think I've gotten better at, you know? Well, uh, I'm interested to say, because, you know, I feel like you and I and, and people at our, our level go through that, right, where you have these great successes and then you have certain stumbling blocks and you're always trying to find, like, what's your next thing and how can I prove myself to then enter that next level of success, which I'm sure will validate me and make my, you know, dad that I never met love me and all my <laughs> deep insecurities that I'm I fighting know. for. But, like... You know, to work with someone like Mindy, right, who's such a juggernaut and has so much success, and yet I imagine she too suffers from so much of the insecurity and the things that we go through, no? Like, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Mindy because she's probably among, easily among my most confident friends, you know? Really? And I think deservedly so. I mean, she's like hugely talented, but part of it is a personality, right. personality thing too. But I would say by and large, 
I think most of my writer friends all bond about the emotional ups and downs of, you know, being creative, putting stuff out there, being judged on it. Right. And and then and then still being happy regardless of what the verdict is on what you've made. Right. And ha- going back to what you were saying before, how do you, sitting there and facing the blank page, how do you manifest that sort of uh, confidence and, and, and re-inspire yourself to believe that you can do this for the umpteenth time? Yeah, I think part of it is making yourself uh, actually put words on the page, right. even if they're bad. Like, you know, if you find that it's it just feels like you're, you know, there's friction, you're not, it just doesn't feel smooth, still make yourself put the words down, even if you have to rewrite every one of them. Right. And at least then you start to, you start to take away the excuses from yourself. Right. So you can't say, oh, I'm just sort of not feeling on right now. Well, that's not an option. You write every day. That's what you do. You've decided, you know? And that's Stephen King's thing too, right? Like writers write. Like it's making that agreement with yourself. Completely. Completely. And trying to get some sort of routine. I feel like I'm hot. Tell me if I'm jumping around too much. No, go for it. Okay, but like, you know, the other thing with, with writing in particular, and acting too, but really especially writing, is that a lot of it can be a solo job, right? Right. I mean, when you're on a show, which is... Super fun. You get to hang out with funny people and very collaborative. But when you're developing projects, you're probably doing it in your office or wherever you write alone. Right. And that can make you a little mad, right? It make you go a little crazy. Oh, yeah. And so, like, that's – I think that's the other thing that writers um, have to practice and get good at, which is this lifestyle, which sometimes involves long stretches of just you and a computer, mm. is that something – you know – that that you can feel f- fulfilled by and, you know, when it's just you, not fulfilled by or happy with or confident about when it's just you alone and you don't have anyone to, to sort of chat with. That's right. A, that's a struggle for some of the more social writers I know. And much in the writing process, I find like this whole romantic idea of like, <laughs> you know, this, you know, William Burroughs, Bukowski-esque guy sitting down at a typewriter and just 200 pages coming out is bullshit. I know. It doesn't happen. You know, there are very, there are some people who can, and it's like they're, they're freaks of nature. Like Dan Fogelman, when he wrote Crazy Stupid Love, he wrote it, I think, in like a week. Shut up. And, and I, I asked him how the final draft compared to that first draft. And he said, you know, very, very similar. And Dan Fogelman, <laughs> who was one of the executive producers of Grandfathered, which Jeremy and I met on, and now, you know, a creator of The Biggest Show on TV, This Is Us, and Crazy Stupid Love, and Cars, and just basically killing the game. Yes. Crushing it, hard body karate. But if you're not Dan, then, yeah, it's, you know... That that sort of romanticized that romanticized vision of what it's uh, like to be a writer is probably not entirely accurate. Right. But by the same token, I do know people who, like B.J. Novak, for example, when mm. he writes, he he'll often like go rent a cabin somewhere <laughs> right. and then go write and you know produces great stuff. So like, even if it's not quite as romantic as people would have you believe writing is. You can still infuse some romance into it. It's like if you're going to have to write this thing, go somewhere where it's fun to write. Right. You know? So you can try to make it romantic. 
And do you find that it, inspiration only reveals itself in the doing? Like, because I think that's also a misconception is that, I mean, inevitably, like, look, I've gotten some good ideas in hot yoga, and I don't know if it's the room <laughs> or like what it is. But, and, you know, taking a hike or whatever, you know, when I'm not forcing it out of myself. But for the most part, inspiration has revealed itself when I've sat in front of the page and gotten through the th first two and a half crappy pages. And then all of a sudden, you know, there'll be five great lines where I'll be like, oh, this is what the first two hours were for. Yes. I mean, I... A lot of, especially with writing for TV shows, it's a lot of the time is not spent on this sort of blue sky, what what might we want to do an episode about? And it's just a blank, just a blank cork board. And, right. you know, then you need inspiration, right? Because you're starting from nothing. But most of the time, you know, you're filling in boxes. You know that, okay, we've just told this story where Josh did this stupid thing. Right. You know, what's a way that he can escalate that and make it worse? Right. So now, you know, you're pitching on a, like, you're pitching a sp to fill a specific hole, to solve a specific problem. Right. And so it's not just, do I feel creative? Do I have something interesting? No, it's, okay, let's focus this brainstorm here. Right. And that's easier. So let's go back because while, like, I really want to be selfish and just get your writing advice because, you know, how rarely you get to sit with, like, a true great writer and someone oh, who's had as much success as you. But Thank so you, you, you grew up in Scarsdale? Scarsdale, New York, right outside the city. Beautiful Scarsdale. The best. I love it. And it's a pretty bucolic upbringing. I mean, was it? It is. It, it's, you know, it's very Jewish town. Right. Um, there were a lot of like really smart students. It was like, I thought a very creative, for public school, like a really creative school. A lot of my friends from high school went into artsy things. Right. Um, like a lot of people are out here doing film and some TV writers. So I appreciated that about sort of liberal Jewish Scarsdale. Right. And I, yeah, I loved it. It was just like, and my, my folks were always very big into creative stuff. Mm. They don't work in it, but they were very supportive of it. Right. So I always felt like, no, I should be doing this. I'm being encouraged to follow that path by my parents. So it was really the only thing you imagined yourself doing? Well, not exactly. I worked in TV news. Right. Yeah, for most of my 20s, actually. And in but DC. You, you imagined television, or did you just, or, or not? Or were you like... Yeah, so... And when I went to Harvard and wrote for the Lampoon, most of my buddies, right, most of my buddies went on to write for TV shows. And it's got to be a fun drop that when I went to Harvard. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, listen, that perks my ears up. I don't care what you say. Thank you. Anything I'm willing to say anything that anyone will see as remotely impressive. So if you think that's impressive, thank you. Do you have to? Is there a certain apology to it? Right? Like, do you? Every time the H-bomb's about to come out, do you have to be like, mm, no, here we go? Most people don't care. <laughs> really? I, I feel like they do. Really? Yeah. Maybe it's because so many TV writers went to Harvard that it doesn't, it doesn't seem rare. It is a club, but, it, but more so it's like, I mean, and I have that reaction when I hear Yale or Cornell, but Harvard's really the, you know, it's the mecca. I mean, in America, it's our greatest institution. Well, for better I'll or say for this, like, the dudes and ladies that I met on the Lampoon are like some of the funniest people I've ever come across. Right. So, you know, getting to be around, like when you're a teenager, getting to be around these incredibly smart people who are all trying to figure out what does it mean to be funny? How do you be funny? Why is this funny? And really break it down. And it's, 
it's invaluable and incredibly, incredibly fun and special. So like the lampoon, I, I feel like I owe, I owe a lot to it's, it, it was just very important to me and I, I have a lot of affection for it. Right. Yeah. But in college at the, like my senior year, this seems so, this sounds ridiculous as I'm saying it out loud now, but it is honestly the truth, which is, so 9-11 was my senior year and I did have this moment of like, why, why, comedy writing? Like, it just seems so. What does it mean? It seems so inconsequential given what's going on in the world. And I wanted to go into politics. So I, um, I had been taking this class at the Kennedy School of Government and my professor was running for the Senate and decided to run for the Senate. And I was writing like some radio commercials from my dorm room my senior year. And then I went to Nashville when I graduated. Right. I worked in that campaign for a while. And then, um, and, and, and then after that I missed, I wanted to do news, TV news, I thought was like very exciting. And, um, yeah, I ended up getting hired by Chris Matthews and, and sort of staying with him for years. So working on a senatorial campaign seems, in whatever position you're in, I mean, it seems rather, like, thankless. Like, you are running, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's not thankless. I, I actually didn't feel, I, it felt so stakesy. You know, you're in mm. this, you're, you're on this team, and there's a binary outcome, right? You're either going to win or you're going to lose. Right. And just like in the way that like sports bonds a team together, so so is, is the case with campaigns. Mm. And so like it felt exciting. You feel like you're doing something, you know, that is important. Right. Um, you know, and I actually personally like I got to do um, really fun stuff on that campaign. One of my jobs was to drive around doing a radio tour with the senator's wife. Oh, cool. I ran her tour. Yes. So we would just be in this car for like hour long, several hours at a time with the senator's wife. Just, and it's interesting. You know, that's one of those moments when you're like, this is a, I'm in Tennessee. This this Jewish kid from from New York is in Tennessee right now with the senator's wife. (laughs) Right. It just, I'm assuming a Democratic senator. You would assume incorrectly. Well, I but mean, I am. I, I, I do tend to be a Democrat. Right. Okay. Because I, you know, I'm thinking like, well, he's teaching at Harvard, but then he's running in such a red state, and I'm like, what's you know, is he is he trying to win? Like, yeah, it's you know, I, yeah, that was a tricky part. I do I do remember that's interesting. That it was tricky for me because right. there were there were things that I I had a tough time sort of getting behind, even if, you know, you were writing some language or uh, prepping for some speech or something. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough if you don't believe in the thing you're fighting for. So that Mm. was a little bit, that was a little tricky. Did you feel as though on a certain level and, you know, and we're not going to get into politics or or anything like that, but it's my belief that for the most part, people have to be slightly inherently bipartisan on some of their views because life is just so rarely black and white. Yeah. And so there's like an inevitable compromise into most people's ideals and, and ideas and whatnot. And so on some level approaching this, right, where it wasn't necessarily your belief system, but you obviously liked this guy and believed in him. Did you feel as though like, well, this might not be exactly what I believe in, but I believe it's serving the greater good and better this than the alternative? I mean, yes, to... Well, gosh, I don't even, 
I'm trying to even remember who the alternative was. And whether, <laughs> you know, at the time, I was also like younger then. You don't quite know what you believe yet. Sure. You're right out of school, you know, and sort of eager to just kind of learn and be a part of the action. And, and then as you get older and start really honing in on your principles, right? then I think it probably gets harder to work for, you know, politicians that you don't totally agree with. And is there, I mean, is that a career for certain people where they, they, because you always believe that it's one of those things that goes hand in hand, like, yes, they make money, but inevitably they have to, has to align with their belief system. Or some people just like, this is how I make a hundred grand a year. Like I get behind the best horse. It depends. I think, you know, a lot of the younger people on campaigns, I think, do tend to sort of be bleeding hearts or get get very swept up in the in the cause, you know, or the movement. Yeah, like when you see these big consulting firms that come in, right. you know, and they get paid like millions of dollars to come up with a strategy. Right. That's pretty mercenary in general. And you know, they're 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 doing it for the gig, for the for the money. Right. But then when you get these like young staffers who are in their twenties and they're they're that's different. Then they care, right? You know, yeah, they're in it for the right reasons. Exactly. So then you're working on this this senatorial race, yeah. and what brings you to Chris Matthews? So, if I remember correctly, I think a bunch of recent Lampoon grads got word that Chris Matthews was starting this new weekend show and might be interested in hiring a Lampoon guy to give it like some some wit, right? Um, and it was just sort of the perfect combination of things I was interested in. So I, I took the job and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, it was, it was very exciting. Over the next seven years, I worked on the Chris Matthews show, his weekend show, and then on Hardball. And, yeah, we would travel around to every state during all the elections. We would produce the debates for MSNBC. Right. It was, it was cool. It was exciting. But I missed, like, writing comedy. Eventually, you know, I just, I, I, that itch needed to be scratched for me. Well, I mean, it's so interesting, too, when, when you have a journalist or a, a news reporter like that say, like, we want to really infuse some comedy into this. Is there a part of you that goes, like, well, that's kind of up to you? <laughs> <laughs> There's a part of me that goes, you know, a, it was, it was around the time when The Daily Show was really just, I mean, it was, it was soaring. It, it was the only thing people were talking about. And I think everybody was trying to do a little bit of what Jon Stewart was doing or get in on that. Right. And you know that, you know, it's much harder than he makes it look. Like being, there are many people who have tried to do incisive political comedy and most of them don't work out. Like what he was doing was very, very special. Right. So part of me knew that like, I I don't know how much comedy is going to be in this new show with Chris Matthews, but I... But I still loved it and got really into all the political junkie stuff for years. Now, I'm always so interested, right, because I as a civilian, my sources are Chris Matthews or Rachel Maddow or Don Lemon. But where are – like what are their sources? Like where are you getting the information that you're then writing into their monologue? Yeah. So it's – there's a really neat system that you have when you – and I think they still – I think it still operates this way. It did when I worked there. You have this thing called iNews, and uh, not to get too in the weeds, but this thing is pretty cool. It's it's this program, and it, like, blares out a siren every time something happens. How exciting. Oh, my God. Oh, and, my God. And the so it and it's color-coded, right? Right. So, like, red is, like, 
some shit happened. There's some big shit going a on. A Kardashian is pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's sort of the sweet spot of a red alert. <laughs> right. It's usually, it's usually that. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, so it, you're using those reports, which are, which are filed by the Associated Press and NBC News reporters and, you know, it's, it's all sort of sources within the system. Right. And then you you would go write your stories, or the reporters would would base it on that. And then all the reporters were doing their own independent work. So, for example, a thing that would happen very often on the show would be there'd be some, let's say, some big court case, mm. and then Matthews would hop on the phone with Pete Williams, who was the correspondent covering it, and he would sort of brief he would brief Matthews on everything he had been reporting on throughout the day, all the sources he had talked to. Right. So the hosts of the shows use the NBC reporters to kind of get them up to date. And are you, who's on the earpiece? So it's different people. Um, Were you ever on the earpiece? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, so mm-hmm. much power. Yeah. It's, it's scary though, because you're, you, uh, so you, you know, you press this little button and wow. you're in his ear, you're in his ear live. While he's in the middle of a sentence That's the scary part. right? Like, I would be so angry if someone's talking to me while I'm talking. It just, it, there's such an opportunity to mess things up. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, Chris, what are you doing? Hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bro. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, we'd say like, you, you do that for breaking news a lot. Right. And that's, that's when it's exciting. You know, you'd. Something would come out over the wires during the show, and you'd mm. have to take the breaking news, and you'd press your button and say, hey, Chris, we've got some some breaking news, or you'd deal with it in the break, or you, you know, and right. you make live television. It's, the control room is fun when you're live. And is it, I mean, I imagine there's, you know, I think some of, some of the things I, that I had heard as of late, especially in the 24-hour news cycle is that inevitably in a desire to be first, mm-hmm. things were being less vetted perhaps. So yeah. they would have a source on the ground, whatever that looks like, and sometimes they wouldn't have time to make sure that all the facts were right, but they would go to news. So was that at all a consideration when you were there? Or, I mean, this was, what, 10, 15 years? Like, yeah, this was like 2002 to 2009. I, you know, I think... Because you're on the line, right? Like, if you possibly oh, misreported something, the blame would fall. Oh, people get fired for, you know, for misreporting. I bet, yeah. You know, at a place like at, I guess, the the sort of old news media, you know, people take that, you know, the accuracy very seriously when, when there's a mistake. As I said, there are consequences. So, yeah, you don't want to be the guy responsible for, put, you know, putting something in front of the host that's not correct or or making an error. That's like, it's very bad. But I don't know. It's it's like an interesting thing to watch the evolution of news because like accuracy is not, it seems like, not quite as valued as speed anymore, which right. is the point you're making, you know? And even if it means that you're right, um, and I'm not talking about cable news now, I'm talking about sort of all sources. But even if you're correct, you know, 80% of the time, 90% of the time. Right. And you're always first. That might be preferable to to that organization or other people than um, somebody who's right 95% of the time and uh, is cautious and not always first. Right. And that's a weird that's a weird like shift I think that we're observing. Right. That it's yeah, speed is more important than accuracy sometimes. 
Well, yeah, I mean, especially in the landscape that we have now where there's so many people doing it. Yes. So it's like, how do they make themselves different and better? And I know, I know. Although I do sort of feel like the the old prestige of, and I, I haven't thought this through, so this could be wrong, but I think like the old prestige of like being first right. might just not exist. But it might not be as important anymore either, though. Like I, I, I feel like things move so quickly that you find out about a breaking news story kind of like by every organization at the same time because right. like it's so quickly everybody has it right that you know i i don't know i guess this is all to say that just it it seems like there are like major shifts going on that i'm not like totally comfortable with with the news the For way sure. news and accuracy and it well, feels different than than when i used to work in it well it feels more so than ever that it's like people's news, uh, the way in which they consume it, it's like, it's like ice cream, right? And it's all one flavor, but it's all sort of a little uh, variation on it. So, you know, like if I want, you know, maybe I'll go get my chocolate chip vanilla from MSNBC, and then I'll go get my, you know, natural organic vanilla bean from CNN. And then if I want to go really crazy, I'll go to Fox News. Like, <laughs> but it's sort of like never before, you know, we always, I think, imagine that it was the facts and just different people saying the same facts. Yes. But now it's like, no, like I like my flavor from over here. Like I'm a Baskin Robbins guy. Oh, I know. It's when you have a country that can't agree on just sort of the basic axiomatic facts of, right. you know, then it becomes very difficult to have like debates about what's right and wrong and policy when you can't even agree on the facts that you're debating. Right. But yeah, oh man, I'm getting <laughs> sad. <laughs> oh gosh. Is America, are we, are we done? Is America going away from, is this last, the last stretch? I don't think so, but you know, we're two Jews having a podcast in Los Angeles. <laughs> what do we know? That's like, Fair enough. <laughs> we, we have no perspective on what the country really is thinking. I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to be pretty optimistic about it and believe in, you know, believe that it doesn't fall on one person and believe in the greater good and that, I don't, you know, it's funny, I was talking to Stamos about this the other day and obviously like, you know, the march that happened over the weekend that this podcast will probably drop in a month. So, you know, um, but inevitably it's just like, I, I inherently believe that the majority wants the same for their kids across the board. Like we all want people to be safe and want the best, but that we all have really different ways of believing it's the best to go about it. And, and therein lies the problem. I hope you're correct. I, I, I my faith, my, my faith has diminished a little bit, in the last, but, but yeah, I mean, Gosh, we just have to hope that, like, yeah, the commonalities between us ultimately will win out. Right. You know? Eesh. I don't know. Have you ever considered running, have, like, for office at any point in time? You had a career so young that, <laughs> I did, you know, you were already working when you were a babe. I don't know. It's much like, look, I love The Rock and Oprah just as much as anyone else. But when people talk about them running for office, I'm like, ah, well, how about a politician? Like, I, <laughs> I, do, know. I do have a lot of faith in and and respect for the office and the institution and the way in which people sort of go through the system. And, and in many times it's on, you know, the grassroots level. And you look at someone like Obama, who was like this community leader and then became a senator and Harvard Law School. Yeah. And, and he seems so very qualified. And I think that's 
I would love to see that next person come in who I believe really had the credentials. And even though I'm charming and okay on a podcast, <laughs> like, I'm not quite sure I would, I'd be- You don't want to do tax policy for I'd America? Have the goods. Yeah. <laughs> be like, entitlement, so it's good. You know, everyone, like, hook everybody up. And the big question is, what, like, yeah, is the, like, the- Trump celebrity victory uh, an anomaly, or are we living in a time now where just the premium on celebrity in elections is just going to be higher than it's ever been? Right. And so that, you know, you're very sort of self-aware take on whether you're equipped to run right. a state or something. You know, it's possible now that the most a lot of candidates won't have that, right. you know? And so someone like Josh Peck could be viable really this Josh is all to say i came here with an agenda i came here with an agenda here <laughs> you're what governor peck california let's talk about your place in the whole uh, presidency are we saying chief of staff are we thinking you know sec secretary of interior something fun that's that'd be kind of neat like i like i like lakes and stuff um, yeah if i could have any job that's like a great that's a great what's like the best i think i would want like cia Maybe if you'll give me that or if you'll give me. But you stay in Virginia. Like you're not a spy out there in danger. You just get all the good no, come gossip. On. Come on, man. I want the top job. You're I'm getting not, the goss. I'm getting all the goss. Yeah, you're the Leon Panetta. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was impressive. I don't mean to patronize, but I'm like very impressed that you that you had the CIA director's name in your in your head. That was... you, you, well, the, only because in Zero Dark Thirty, they mention his name, which is a movie by <laughs> Catherine Bigelow yes. that I, I just love because I have a total like platonic crush on Jessica Chastain. Jessica, awesome. hope you're listening. She's very talented. <laughs> she was so good in the Aaron Sorkin movie. I, what was the... Um... Molly's Game. Yeah, I thought she was so good. Yeah. Speaking of Aaron Sorkin, are there any people like that, like the great sort of Mount Rushmore writers who are your your guys you look up to. Definitely. Well, first of all, Aaron Sorkin went to Scarsdale High School. Right. And so he was like a legend there. In fact, was he? And I think this is a real story and not something that I've just made up, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I, I seem to remember that when I did plays in high school, people signed their names on the wall, like a big wall afterwards. Right. And I think we had like Aaron Sorkin's circled from when he was in plays in Scarsdale High School, which was like a very, a very neat thing. He's a man. Oh, he's... Yeah, he's like so talented. Who else? Uh, other writers I look up to: Mindy, right? Norman Lear, obviously, right? Gosh, you know, I'm really. Um, and then there, are, you know, I'm really into a lot of dramas too. Like there are drama writers that I'm just like so impressed by. I do you watch The Americans? I don't. That show is so good. I bet so good. Work, yeah, I like, and I'm interested to know. What are like specific qualities and considering you worked with Mindy on a regular basis, like what what are those qualities where you were like that's so impressive or or you think led to why she's so prolific and, and has had so much success? You know, I think I th among my friends I think who've, you know, been the most successful or have made things that, you know, were really cool, I think they're able to combine a unique voice mm. and that's that's hard to just w will right it's like right. you're somebody who has an interesting perspective on the world and then you also like learn the mechanics of how to build a story and how to and i think it's combining those two things it's something that mindy does fantastically well danny does great you know it's yeah i think it's it's 
the ability to fuse those two things, right? Voice and structure, you know. And and it seems to me, in my experience, like that is the great through line, right? As someone who's become incredibly good at the basics, at the at the the age old tenets of storytelling, and then are able to improvise upon that. Totally, yeah. Because you 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 know you read about story structure, and you realize that you know certain basics just don't change, right? You know. You'd like read Aristotle and it's like the same laws of storytelling, but then it's, okay, now that I understand these rules, how can I break them? How can I play with them? How right. can I use my voice to, to tell this kind of story in a new way? You know? Right. Yeah. So you work for Chris Matthews for eight years, and then when do you say, okay, I think I've done everything I want to do here, and then go on to the next? Yeah. So I was, you know, I, st- I just wrote a pilot, you know, just to just to see if I could, see if I enjoyed it. And actually, Danny, Danny Chun, uh, I think, if I remember, I think he sent it to his manager, who's now my manager. Okay. And he was very encouraged by it, told me to keep writing stuff. And I ended up writing, like, packets of material for all the variety shows. Right. You know? And what does that, what does a packet look like? Is it a monologue? Is it just straight jokes? It's different for each show, but in general, for the late night shows, it tends to be, you know, pages of, of jokes or if there are any recurring bits right. that that show does, you know, uh, uh, submitting some of those and then some sketch ideas in paragraph form. Right. That usually, that, if I remember, that's like usually what the, what the process is. And then you send it in and never hear anything. Right. <laughs> and then, oh yeah. I know yeah, that. Yeah, I know yeah. that part. That, you know that feeling? It's, <laughs> it's man, it's, oh God. Those variety shows in particular, I, I sympathize with everyone, you know, who's, who's, who's trying to get in that game. And I, and stick with it, and it's so fun and entirely worth it. But it's tough because so many people submit for those shows, and right, it just feels like you're there's this big stack of, and you're somewhere in that stack. But um, but it is a worthwhile goal because it is it is incredibly fun to work on those variety shows. So I yeah I um I wrote a bunch of packets and I took the job of the first one that that called us back, and it was this this David Allen Greer show on Comedy Central. Wow, yeah. And it, it only lasted for eight episodes, but... He's he's a genius. Oh, he was so, so funny. Just yeah. like a great performer. I really liked him on the Carmichael show. Yeah. The, yeah. And uh, I, I so I, yeah, he hired me. It was like a news parody show. It lasted eight episodes, so it wasn't on long, but by the time it ended, I got uh, hired by Fallon. And how long did you work on The Late Show? Or The Tonight Show? It was late night when late I was night. there. Um, gosh, Almost four years, three and a half years. What's more pressure, that or Chris Matthews? That. The, that. The, yeah, because I was the head monologue writer. So the... the you uh, know, immediately. Not immediately. But after, pretty... After the first year. You did pretty all right. <laughs> they saw Jay there. They were like, my man's, my man's got the skills. <laughs> That's what they said. They said, we think you're doing all right. You we're going to make you... Let him take point. You know, put him in the one spot. You know, he can control the ball. That's, so I... Um, <laughs> I... Yeah, it, that's pressure because... I mean, for that job, you know, when you're, you have these rehearsals right? where, you know, all the jokes in contention are read before like a test audience every day. Right. And what time is that? Two? Yeah. Three. I think it was like three o'clock. So it's the show before the show. Exactly. But just the monologue. Just some. Okay. Yeah. And it's in, at, at uh, the Tonight Show or late night at the time, it's an NBC tour group. So it's like one, you know, they're going around 30 Rock, stopping by the Today Show, then they take them to late night. They get to hear a monologue. I mean, isn't that the greatest 
bait and switch ever. Like, come work for us for free for the next half an hour. <laughs> but you know what? It is a, it is like a very cool thing to get to do. Like, go behind, go like to get to if you're just an audience member or a fan to see the host working through the jokes because. You know, Jimmy would often tell a joke, and then he'd say, yeah, "Do you guys? What do you think? Do you like that one?" And you they ask the audience, "Oh yeah," and they'd say, "Like yeah," or yeah. if they didn't, I would like, you know, "Come on, guys, help me out here." And <laughs> try it, to do my job. Is it uh, how many people is it? Thirty? Who? Yeah, it was about thirty people. And I mean, my one of my favorite things ever, and, and working on a sitcom before Grandfathered, but it seems to be sort of across the board with comedy writers. You always know whose joke belongs to which writer by how loud they laughed. Oh gosh, <laughs> this is a very, very interesting etiquette thing that you brought up. So, Mike Shoemaker, who was the executive producer of uh, Late Night, and now he's actually he's still it. He's the executive producer for Seth Meyers, and he used to say that like a like from the get-go when we started, he said there's nothing he likes less than when a writer tries to like goose their material, tries to laugh and sort of push their own stuff. Right. And I was like, oh gosh, I never, <laughs> I never ever want to be the guy who's, you know, just sweatily trying to, you know, push his material. Right. So I, most of the people that I knew on Late Night were like pretty cool about that for the most part. Right. Those like cool people. They don't want to be. They don't want to that guy. That guy. But there always are. Well, it's so funny, and it's the worst. I mean, on Drake and Josh, I think because it was kids television, and the creator of the show, Dan, he because a lot of times we wouldn't film in front of an audience because we were kids, so we had very specific hours we could work. Yeah, and so sometimes we'd have to shoot a lot of things in rehearsal or the day before. And so Dan, feeling, you know, that he needed to make it clear for the kids about, you know, once you've told a joke, you need to give room for the laugh. Mm. So Dan was the guy that no matter what, if you walked onto the set of Drake and Josh, whether the joke was the funniest thing ever or just kind of okay, in the back, you would just hear one guy going, ah, ha, 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 ah, <laughs> and you were like, I don't know. It sounds patronizing. Yeah. And then sometimes you'd be like, he really, that that was a real one. You it, couldn't tell. It's it's so funny. I, gosh, I'm so skeptical of laughter. <laughs> like, f- just like for that reason, right. kind of, that like I, I often don't trust it or I think that somebody's just trying to make me feel good or. Right. But yeah, with, on late night, probably because Mike Shoemaker set the tone, people didn't fuck around with that they you know they were generous to the other writers but what do you think about like working in late night and like my experience with sitcoms what i loved about it as opposed to the single camera comedy which is so in fashion now and and has been for a long time you know the one thing that i thought was superior to the live format or you know with sitcoms you're doing three days of rehearsal and rewrites before you ever shoot yeah and so you really know if the joke plays because you've you've now vetted it at least for a couple days and it's gone through many iterations and you've, you know, for better or for worse, you're like, this is the best version of the, that this joke is going to get. Whereas sometimes on a single cam, you know, comedy, you walk on set and th- those words other than in the writer's room have never been said out loud. And maybe just that joke coming out of that actor t- isn't the same. Yeah, right? it's, it's entirely true. But, you know, the shows that I've, like, for example, on the Mindy Project, we had these you know, Ike Barinholtz, right. who you know well, and and Dave Stassen on set, who are hilarious writers, there all the time, p- 
pitching alts because alternative jokes because right. for just that reason that you just don't know what's going to feel funny when it, you're on your feet on the day on the day and especially you know you want to have backup options for jokes when you're in the edit room because as you said you don't have that sort of objective audience laughter right. to tell you no that worked right you know what i mean so at least you want to have options when you get in the edit room that's why i love all jokes and you do too like you're oh, oh yeah oh my god when we were on grandfather that was like you would always do several versions, improvised versions, try this, try that. And it was great. We like, it would give us, it would give us flexibility in the edit room, you know? Well, what I love about comedy especially is sort of the, you know, it's, it's the meritocracy of it all is that like, there's no great guru of it. And, Entirely. and you know, there's, it's just, and, and Seinfeld, or I think Colin Quinn has this great quote about like comedy is the closest thing to justice mm. because, you know, it's not left up to interpretation. If it doesn't get a laugh, it wasn't funny. That was – I totally agree with that. And that was actually a nice thing about writing monologue jokes for late night. Right. Is you feel that, you know, there is going to be a certain fairness, a certain objective test of everyone's material. And if it doesn't get a laugh, you really – there's not much you can you can argue with, right? Right. It's pretty objective. And if something gets a bigger laugh than something else – that may also be pretty objective, you right. know? And so, like, that sort of fairness that's kind of like best joke wins. Right. It's a good, it's a good motivator. It feel, you know, you feel like you just want that laugh because it's real. Right. Yeah. What did you learn from Fallon? Oh, man. He, he's so good. I, there were so many things. There, that particular job that I had there trained me to write jokes under pressure. Right. Which is like a very important skill when you have deadlines, you know? How do you block out that pressure so that you can be funny? Right. And that was something I learned on that show because they tape every day at the same time and you're sitting there churning out your jokes and <laughs> they have to be done by a certain time or there's breaking news and we need a joke on it in 10 minutes. Right. And you're just firing off whatever you can think of. That was a good like Fallon's skill that I learned there. The other, the other sort of skill, and this seems a little, I don't know, this might seem kindergarten to you, uh, or, or it sort of, me. but I don't know. It's, it's helpful to me, which is that like, that was a show. It was a daily show. And when you have a daily show, not every, they all can't be the best, right? You're going to, some will be stronger than others. It's just part of doing something every day. And so being able to, at the end of the day, if you weren't happy with something, say, well, like, tomorrow this slate gets wiped clean it's and baseball. we start from scratch. It's right. baseball. And, like, you know, that's, it's just a simple little thing. But it, I don't know, it helps me kind of reset to yeah. say to myself, okay, like, new day. Fight you another know? day. Fight another day. And that was a skill I learned from that. Yeah. Were, was there ever sort of DEFCON 5 moments where – you know, for whatever reason, the studio tour, they were not feeling the monologue. And like you were faced with perhaps at 3.30 in the afternoon, you're about to go or you're about to record in an hour. You're like, we have to throw out 75% of this. Of course. That a that, lot, you know, sometimes not a, not a lot. I say as we, you know, as we sort of learn Fallon's voice a little more as the show sort of figured out what it was good at. 
that happened less often, but still would happen all the time. And then everyone, all the monologue writers run back to their offices. Right. And the way it works is you write one joke at a time and then hit send to, you know, usually to me, I was compiling them and sorting through them. Right. So write a joke, send, write another one, send. And you don't, you don't edit, you don't, you don't uh, pick the good ones and the bad. You just fire off whatever you have. Right. In real time. And it's a really like, it's, it's a cool process. It's, it's kind of like, don't overthink it. There's no time to. So just go with instinct and like write and send. And it, it always would work out. And then you are sort of aggregating all the jokes and, and disseminating them. And then does it, is the final sort of arbiter Jimmy? Yes. So during that rehearsal, he would check off the ones that did well. And anything he checked off you would put into the monologue that night. Right. And then you'd have to sort of write some connective tissue between them so it actually feels, you know, like a piece. Right. You know? Yeah, it was... And and that we would do as a group. The monologue writers would all kind of pitch tags and, and little extra jokes and polish, and we would all do that together. Right. So then you go on to Grandfathered and... Or Mindy and then yeah. Grandfathered. And so what do you think... Like, I'm interested to... No, you know, you've worked under great showrunners and then you've run your own show. And like, what, what do you think it, what does it take? Like what, what are some of the qualities that you think are the most important to make a show work? Yeah, I think part of, I think a a big part of it is knowing what your show is trying to do going into battle so that at least there's a target that you're trying to hit because it's hard to hit targets, and if you don't have a target, uh, it feels like you have a meandering show. Right. So the more like going into it, you can know what your show is, why it's funny, why it's interesting, and then try to hit those marks, hit those targets. I think that's that's important, you know. Being collaborative with people, you know, which is actually tricky. Like it's tricky being, you know, knowing how to feed, you know how to respond to people's pitches when you like them or don't like them, knowing how to give notes that aren't, that are encouraging and, and helpful, but also keep morale up. I mean, it's right. You know, you're managing a, a staff of writers that have to churn out this product. And then you have like a 200 person crew and it's, it's a lot of moving pieces. So I, I, I think, you know, how do you make a good lunch order? That's important. That's like the, that's the everything. The writers eat well, in my experience. Yes. It's so funny because like every year, anytime you're on a new show, and th- literally this happens like every single year, the line producer shows up and says, okay, okay guys, so like there's a new policy this year. Right. You're not getting free food. And then the writers all go absolutely ballistic. It's like- I love it. It doesn't matter. Like pay us pennies, like, forget, whatever. Like, give us bad contracts, but, like, you will not take away the free lunch. Yeah, it's the small wins. It is, and and then in the end, the writers always win that one. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I like hanging, and the writers usually get their own meal separate from what the crew's eating. And oh, yeah. So, no, we're very elitist. Oh, we, man. Sometimes you would have, like, I'm talking P.F. Chang's level of, like, I mean, these are high-class eateries. It's a Tuesday, yeah. I, mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is some this is some delicious food. I know. I know. So, how do you especially like when you've run your own show and for most most of the time any sort of half hour comedy will have 
10-ish writers, or more or less? Yeah, we had a few more than that on the mayor, but yeah, I think that's probably about average. And how do you stack your team? Like, are you basically, is it like sports where you're looking for people with specialties? Totally. Yeah. You know, it's very difficult to put together a staff in a landscape where there are so many shows right now, right? Right. Many of them are short orders, but it's scheduling-wise still means, you know, that a writer's not available. Right. And... So it's it's tricky, you know, finding people that happen to be available when you need them. There's right. that. And then also, since, you know, you and I have talked a bunch here about, like, comfort and confidence and all of that. And so, like, you ideally, you do want a couple of people, at least, that, like, you have a shorthand with. Because in a world where things feel chaotic, that's, like, that's helpful and comforting. But again, just harder just the odds that your buddies are available are, are slim. I was very lucky on the mayor because I felt those writers were fantastic and so many, so many incredibly talented, smart people that were on it. But a lot of them I hadn't worked with before. And do you think that – I'm interested as well to know like – you know, I, I, we rarely get a, to look behind the curtain as actors of what the casting process is like. Oh. And, you know, it it – can feel so very personal yeah. to an actor, right? Because even if you if you distill it down to before you're ever in the room and you're just meeting a casting director, sometimes you've had a week with the material and you've worked on it and you've, you know, like I always go through the bad sort of uh, habit of like, my God, I can't believe I'm going to play this role and I wonder what the craft service is going to yeah. be like. And <laughs> God, the announcement of when I get this and then you go in and you read it once and you're not the guy and they say, thank you so much. It's... And you're like, oh God, what am I doing with my life? And then it's all, I mean, I'm sure also, you know, the same group of people are often up for the same parts that you're going up for. So oh, yeah. it's just, it's not even that like sort of anonymous person got your part. It's like one of those people that's always against you. Oh, please. It's like, if, I mean, if I see, you know, uh, Miles, uh, Miles Teller come in a room, I'm like, <laughs> well, I might as well go home. Not that he has to go in the room anymore. But it's so funny amongst like we have our, you know, our, our little groups of actors that have go out for the same things. And there's only two conversations. It's either, man, did you hear about Miles? He's crushing it. Or it, did you hear about John? He went back and he's selling real estate in Dallas. <laughs> you're like, we lost another one. You know, you don't want to be the guy selling real estate in like Santa Clarita. I know. Giving up. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so, I, I do feel for actors, especially during pilot season. It seems, it's tough. It's like. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's, it's so tough. And also, it's just, the fact that you don't ever, tell me if this is true. I I feel like you never really know why you didn't get it or what was lacking or why was this person better. Like, I don't know if you ever actually get the honest feedback. No. Or, no, you don't. You so get this is a little. A little bit. If you're lucky, you'll get... But then again, it's like it, all the way back to what we were talking about, about when you're giving notes to a friend about their script or whatever, where sometimes you feel like there's more, they're trying to say more, like... They might say the look was wrong or or it's an age thing or his sensibility where they're using generalized terms because they don't want to break the actor's spirit instead of being honest where it's like I'm, I have a friend who's a really successful actor who once got some of the best feedback he had from a huge director who basically said like it felt you felt desperate. Wow. And like. And was he able to actually use that to 
make a change. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, it was a big role, and we've all been guilty of this at times where it's just like you get bogged down in the stakes of it all. And yeah. like, oh, God, like, you know, we're so desperate to perform. But as you know, sometimes it's just an energy of someone walking in the room, and, and it can be on or immediately off. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah, for the mayor, when Brandon Michael Hall, who played the, the mayor, came, walked in for his test, and that was, there was, Something about that moment that everybody in the room was like, oh, he, this is a star. We found our guy. But it just as easily could have been just the chemistry just didn't quite click. Right. And it wouldn't have necessarily been through any like fault of the actors, you know? Right. Um, you know, the thing is like, I don't know. There are like people that I've passed on for parts that I was dumb to. And they're, people sure. make so many casting mistakes that you shouldn't. You shouldn't, like, take it too personally. Right. Because it's just, you know, uh, there are just so many errors made. Amazing people passed over. People would choose somebody different if they could do it over again. Sure. That, you know, yeah. Do you it's feel, tough, though. Uh, like, I, I heard Vince Gilligan once talk about this, who, you know, created Breaking Bad and yeah. X-Files, and he's, you know, so talented. And he said something to the effect, and it made me feel so good, and he was referencing Brian Cranston when he had a part that he had written on the X-Files and Cranston came in and was already Cranston, brilliant and talented, but just wasn't the guy. Mm. He's like, because for, for better or for worse, when I'm writing a character, I have an image of this person. And when you come in and if you don't look anything like them, there's very little you can do to win. And it's, conversely, it's totally yeah, like, and if you do look like them, then I'm just kind of hoping you're pretty good. Yep. Is it's, that the case? Well, it's, sometimes it is. You know, yeah. you have a, like a very set idea of, of the energy that this particular character is supposed to have. And it may not be correct. It may just be your opinion, your preference. Right. Um, that kind of thing happens all the time. Like, even I went with the mayor. There were a few actors that came in for different roles that I, I thought were sensational actors. Right. It just wasn't right, wasn't right for this. Right. That happens all the time. You know, so at least like at least you can tell yourself reasonably that like it, oftentimes it is just it. There's something about a match, something in the the producer's head that is like has nothing to do with the talents of the actual actor. And do you think? And and I'm doing this for all my fellow actors out there, right? Yeah. Because this is something within their control above and beyond the performance, what is a pet peeve of yours when an actor comes in for a casting where you just make a snap decision in your mind like, fuck this guy? Not being <laughs> off book. Not being off book. Yep. Yeah. Um, especially if there are not that many scenes or if, if, if you gave, you know, three pages of sides. Right. Eh, learn it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, first of all, you can't, like, there's a limit to how funny you can be when your hands and face are buried in a page, right? right. And then... You know, it's like, it's a respect thing too, mm. you know? Obviously, it's like different. You hear like, you hear about movies where there's like 30 pages of sides and scene work. That's different. Right. But I think, um, yeah, in pilot season, even though there's a lot of auditions that people have, uh, memorizing it, that's a biggie, I right. think. And I think, you know, when it, there are many times, tell me if this has ever happened to you in an audition. Like, there are times where we've loved an actor and then just to kind of kick the tires on it, We'll say, okay, like, now maybe let's try it this way. Mm. You know what I mean? And and it's just because you're like sort of experimenting and feeling out, yeah. see, seeing 
you know, what the, what the person can do. So I found that like, I don't know, a lot of times there are, there are auditions you think may not be going well and it's not because that may not be the case. It may be somebody who's really, really just trying to learn about everything you can and cannot do. Totally. Does that make sense? I don't think I've ever booked a role. I, I don't think I've ever booked a role where they've I've done it once, even if I felt great, and they've said thank you so much, and mm. I've laughed. Yeah, I almost always find that if I'm going to get a role or I'm in contention, that that's exactly right. The director, the the writer wants to see some other levels. Yeah. and flavors. Totally. Um, I find as an actor, and and I'm only finding this now, you know, 20 years later. So that's awesome. <laughs> but, <laughs> That I, you know, I get locked into a, a certain rhythm of a scene, especially in comedy. Interesting. Where I find that I'll just hit the same beats and that sometimes a writer or a director has asked to see it two, three, four times. And I think I've screwed myself over by playing the same beat every time instead of adapting myself to their notes a little bit better. Maybe at the detriment that maybe it won't hit as hard as the first time I did it. But I'm honoring their notes and showing that I can take their direction. Uh, yes, and I think, and I think it's worth doing that too. You like with your background, how you came up, and with comedy and with jokes, you'll look at. I mean, I imagine you'll look at a page, see where the funny stuff is, and figure out like, okay, how do I nail those moments and and be funny and hit each of those. Right. And then suddenly you get this note that's like rejiggering your sense of like how you're going to hit those jokes. Right. Um, but that's. Fine. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's it's fine, even if you botch it up a little bit. Like, uh, that's... it. The, the, the opportunity to show range, I think, is sometimes worth, you know, sacrificing some polish. Right. I think that's, you know, coming from, an, and it's a, sl a slow realization I've had over time, is coming from being a kid star in that world was, was very specific because I think that people that work with kids feel as though... If we're lucky enough to where it really works one way yeah. and they can just do it five times and we can get the coverage, like, let's be happy with that. So it was a deep need to please and say, look, I can do it the same way five times, boss. Oh, that's so interesting. And now getting older and especially in working in things that are higher level and different stakes is that inherently good acting is being able to honor the moment and the reality for which you're in then. Totally. And giving different gradations of performance. And do you ever, and like, I feel like no one ever really talks about this, but like on Grandfathered, for instance, and I don't know how your experience was, but like we made the show that we were so proud of and we went one season. Was there, you know, is there, I know as an actor, right, there was definitely a feeling amongst us that halfway through when we were sort of, our future was sort of not clear, you know, it does change the energy a little bit on set. And you're all sort of questioning, like, you know, whereas if you have a hit right off the bat and you know you're in, you know, you know you're in good shape, you're kind of all, I mean, it's a big honeymoon. It's, I think it has a huge effect. That first number will have huge implications for the, right. the tone of everybody who works on the show and the network and the studio, all of that. Um, yeah, it really, it does. When it looks like a job may go away, a, a show may go away, um, you get a very different energy, you know, than you would when, when things are going, going well. Right. But that's also like a leadership thing, a showrunner thing, too, is to the extent that you can, you know, um, keeping morale up and 
and still like making the best product possible and then crossing crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Right. But yeah, it's gosh, it's so tough. Well, I feel like when you're you're in that place where you're unsure of your future, you start reading into everything, mm-hmm. especially in the notes from the network. And then also like you stop, you know, inevitably, right? It's like we're we're trying to make each other laugh with hopes that it will make the world laugh. Yes. But then if you're like not sure of what makes you laugh is working, you start going or at least me I started going way outside of like my I don't want to say comfort zone, but I was like, maybe I should be trying something else. Like, maybe this will be what really hits. Right. Getting to to the place of sort of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks is, and and sometimes, you know, things, if things aren't working or people are nervous, you just, you'll you'll try anything. But it's never a good sign when that's, it's never a good sign when I'm like, I don't know, maybe this will work. Yeah, let's see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Though that's the best too, like when when the people that aren't on the creative side of it, like the transportation guys that drive (laughs) the trucks would be like, oh man, you know, I'm just, uh, uh, you know, I'm. I don't know. It's not looking good, guys. <laughs> You're like, Rick. Come yeah. on, man. We're you know, there's a delusion that we are trying to yeah. adhere to here. Keep, keep your spirits up. Like, it's all good, baby. Not looking good, Josh. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> what? All right. So I've kept you here long enough. So I guess uh, you know, in closing, uh, if I can, if this podcast can help any like fellow writers or actors or comedians or what have you. Will you give like sort of a brief description of your writing process when you're approaching something new? Like from the idea, are you, do you heavily outline things? Do I you, do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So my process, if I'm going to write a pilot, I'll tell you my personal process. Yeah. Um, I start out with, I have a little pad. I just like write down all my, all my blue sky ideas. Some of them are little notions. Some of them are big ideas. And I kind of have a policy of just like, if I think it, I write it down. I don't try to be too precious about it at that stage. And then I sort of go through my notebooks and try to hone in on what I'm excited about from that notebook. And when I have my idea, that's when I start saying, okay, well, what is interesting about this idea? And let's lean into that. And if I can't say why it's interesting, then maybe it's not, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Right. And... And then you can start building a story. You start saying, like, okay, so, like, I have this, this main character in this world that I'm interested in. Mm. Who would be a good, a good secondary character to complicate his life? Right. Right? And you can start thinking, pitching on that to yourself. And you're just, you find yourself kind of building pieces, different blocks to build this world. And once you have that, then you can start figuring out, okay, now how do I structure a story right. to actually tell that? But I, that comes later, you know? I think there's a lot of work to be done before you're even structuring and outlining and basic questions. Who who are these people? What do they want? Why do we care? And where's the conflict coming from? And where's the comedy coming from? If if you can't answer those questions, you're not ready to start outlining yet. Right. And that takes a lot lot of time. So um, that's sort of like kind of phase one, you know? And then phase two, I outline really heavily. I think right. I I like it. I like knowing where it's going. I like putting jokes in the outline too, you know? Right. So most of this, you know, for like a 30-page script, I would often write like an outline that's 15 pages, almost you know, half as long or longer. Right. And then you, you do a draft. And when I do a draft, I try to write it as fast as possible the first time just to get it, just to have something to work with. And then you're like, okay, this is not where I want it to be yet, but there's something on the page. Right. 
And then and then I would, could go scene by scene and actually try to make it good. You know? Right. Yeah. That's how a Harvard grad does it, y'all. That's how we do it. Jeremy, you're Josh, my hero. Thank you. I love you. This has been the best. It's so fun. I loved it. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks. That's it. We did it. Okay? Can you believe that? Feel good about it. You finished a podcast. I'm proud of you. I feel a sense of pride when I finish a podcast. Like I, I listened to every bit of that. I juiced that thing for every, every drop. Got it. Boom. I'm smarter now because I heard smart people talking. Well, not the host, but the guy who was interviewed. He's smart. Jeremy Bronson, I love you. He's a mensch. You know what that is? In Yiddish, in Jewish, in the Jewish language, it means it's a, it's a good boy, sweetheart, good guy, a mensch. I'm getting older, everyone. I'm 31, and I find that I've started to incorporate Yiddish more and more into my vernacular. And I, I don't apologize. I like it. You know, I'm getting older. I like soup, a, a sign of age. You love soup and comfortable clothing, you know, to my truth. Anyway, guys, <laughs> I've got more podcasts for you every week. Thank you for joining me. So excited for you guys to hear the next couple of uh, interviews I have coming out over the next few weeks. I've been so lucky, such cool people, and um, I'm having a great time. Thank you for listening. Okay, bye.